0: Yeah, that's that's Lupe's perspective. <laughs> to it back to her Uh That's what she's Very saying. Very smoothly
1: done. Very smooth. So not as he handsome, yes, nice. he's smooth. <laughs> <laughs> To a new episode, a new bonus episode of the um, podcast. We've got we've got another interview for you today, but we're not going to spoil who it is. Although obviously you've read that, and that's why you've clicked on it. But let's just pretend it's our little secret for the time being. So we are the end pod. Before we get started, you can find us on all platforms, including the one that you're listening to now. We've got an Instagram, which is the end underscore pod. Same on Twitter. We're on all your streaming platforms of preference, so now that's out the way. With me as always,
2: Tim. Tim, how are you? Matt, I'm doing great. It's nice to talk to you. Um, I know listeners have now come to expect a brief Boston Celtics minute, so I wanted to just give you an update on that. I don't know if you've been following this. But uh, we got a big trade possibly here. Jalen Brown might be going for Kevin Durant, some version of that. So I don't know if you are find that. Kevin Durant might be a Celtic here. So, you know, stay tuned on that. Not as your your boss to
1: Celtics. In the brief month that I was a Celtics fan by proxy, I felt that (laughs) Twitter either thought um, Brown was either hideously over or hideously underrated there was nobody yes. that shot down the middle like it was just like totally. get
2: him out or, or, or get, get more of him now i know, it. I know. <laughs> well he was definitely their best player during the finals um yeah, yeah but you know i don't know man we'll see what happens i'm a little nervous like, about l-
1: that i'm gonna cut that off because we can't yes, keep him tough. waiting any longer now i don't know how much you'll agree with this but i think we have with us today possibly the most handsome man in the whole of comics and certainly one of the nicest welcome aboard Dennis how are you
0: today it is early but I'm doing well thanks for having me guys <laughs> I know, that's thank it. you for the compliment I guess <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's entirely my fault because I'm the only person in a different corner of the entire world well, you're,
0: you're
2: being nice the reason we have to meet at this time is because my kids get up at like 8 30 and then it's just <laughs> complete <laughs> mayhem here so it's seven eight, it's about seven where I am which is in Utah so,
1: Dennis, let's um let's get the let's get the easy part of it out of the way where we will throw platitudes and and uh <laughs> adore your work, whether it's honest or not. No, not really. I enjoyed this probably as much if not anything that you've written before. We we were talking about it's almost felt like a kind of like lyrical exchange um in the way that it's know sort of chorus verse interchange between the developments in the plot and I think as well with the way that you write that it's kind of musical in the way that there's no preface to a song it just kind of starts and you hit the ground running which I think is a great way to set the tone.
0: Thank you yeah um, I think one of the reasons this book reads the way that it does is we had the advantage of time that I don't normally have. Uh, (laughs) The book was created uh, like I was telling you guys before we started recording, the book was created during lockdown when Pencils Down happened and I had nothing else to do. Um, I, all of my Marvel books got canceled or got paused first and then canceled. Exo um, Man of War got paused for like eight months and I had nothing to do. Oh, yeah. And I was home alone with my children all day, uh, losing my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I think A Hard Eyes and then another book that I'm, that I, at the same time another creator own book got more thinking time than anything i've ever done and it allowed us to really um yeah like think and rethink and and go through that and then victor abania is the co-creator and artist he really likes to think things through and to question me and to make sure i'm not making dumbass decisions yeah. and so we're <laughs> able to have a lot of back and forth and um really think about like not just what's the story what does Victor want to draw, but also like, why are we the people to tell this and what do we have to say? And so I think that's uh, probably um, what you're getting there. Now we had less time with the later issues, so it's possible. It gets really bad from here, but um, I'm glad (laughs) (laughs) to hear the first issue. Quite (laughs)
1: possibly. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I picked up from doing the the sort of deep dive into the back catalog as well. I don't know if it's something intentional or, or maybe just something that I'm picking up, having read so much of it at any time, but There's the old adage that it's best to write from experience. Going through your back catalogue, it's almost an allegory for your personal experiences at the time. With this, it's very clear it's finding love in the apocalypse, which is, you know, without delving into your personal life, like that is pretty much what happened for you. Sea of Stars is about... Um, a father being separated from its child and that there's very much a part of your life that was happening not as obviously as quite as dramatically from that but it was a part of the divorce process speaking of that cloak and dagger is like quite almost abruptly um coming from that um spider woman uh pregnant spider woman when you had It was something that completely shot you and there was quite an adjustment period. It's, I I would absolutely, okay, let's not say absolutely, let's say 90 to 95% certainty say that Love Struck came out of a couple of uh, relationships that didn't end quite so well.
0: (laughs) Uh, It is, man, Love Struck, probably, yes. Probably Love Struck is based, I was so young when I wrote that book. Because I wrote that book uh, right after Gearhead. So Gearhead came out in 2007, and I wrote the first issue of Lovestruck immediately. And then Kevin Mellon, the artist of those two books, got really busy with other things. So it didn't yeah. come out for four years. So by the time the book was out, yeah. like I didn't relate personally to anything wow. that was in it anymore. Um, yeah. But no, I absolutely make things autobiographical, and I don't ever do it on purpose. Like so which one my- yeah. Yeah. When my life changes while I'm making something, it will turn from, like, it'll turn from one thing into another accidentally, and yeah. I think I just have a very simple brain, and <laughs> whatever it's going through emotionally, like, comes out on the page, but no, you're 100% right, uh, and all of those things, and I think Cloak and Dagger is the weirdest one, because it <laughs> don't <laughs> works, like, I, I was... In, in the deepest darkest depths of the emotional turmoil that is a divorce and yeah. i tried to write a story about two superheroes breaking up and i yeah. think i just wrote about my divorce and yeah. i it's an uncomfortable read because of that fortunately that series was supposed to be part of a huge marvel Comicsology partnership that the comiXology was going to push these marvel digital first yeah. books and then they decided to do comicsology, comicsology originals in the middle of that process, and dropped all the promotion for the Marvel books. So like nobody read that. You're like one of four people that has ever read my uh, Cloak and Dagger run, um, <laughs> which is fine. It's fine with me. Like I, <laughs> I, I was I was uh, working some stuff out on the page, we'll say, and I'm not sure how effective it is as a Cloak and Dagger book, but it is. Yeah, it was an it was an interesting exploration of my feelings on. Separation and divorce and the turmoil that comes from that, I actually um,
1: like that series of yeah. um, them they went like Black Label. I can't remember what they called it. it was like Marvel premier graphic novels or when they actually came to print. Did you do one of the secret wars uh secret warps or something like that did you do was it, was yeah. it yeah. Rat, Rat yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah, and then that process going on to the uh, digital exclusive ones as well gave us Jed Mackey, who I think's kind of like treading on the hills of that sort of Chitsadasky tone where you can get levity and tragedy in the same page so
0: right there were some good books and uh within that i kelly thompson did uh maybe a jessica jones thing through that that was really good yeah she did through too the, yeah, she did yeah that too. was very yeah, good yeah i think it would have been a cool line of digital comics if they had gone that direction and then yeah. it you know they came out they came out in print and they came out digitally they just didn't promote the
2: when you say you write these stories that are somewhat autobiographical, un- sort of unintentionally, do you feel like the process is cathartic for you? Or do you feel like, you know, because a lot of it's kind of dark um, thematically. I wonder if it, if it helps you or if it, if it gets you into an even darker place. I can imagine it going either way, honestly.
0: I think so. It, so look, plot to me is something you have to do in order to get to character work. Why I chose to write genre fiction in, in comic books. I don't know, because it would be a lot easier to just do indie movies where it's just all about character development. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think what I'm doing when I write is trying to make stories about monster apocalypses or, you know, like a, <laughs> a, a pair of superheroes with weird drug powers that need each other to survive. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to find a way to make that human and relatable and the only experience I have is my own. So like, even even if I come at it from an angle that's not that relatable to me, but seems relatable to the human experience, I think I just, you know, it gets infused with that. What ends up happening um, is I kind of figure out what a book is about in the middle of writing it. Um, Mm. And that can be really fun, especially on an ongoing, because you have what the book's about at the beginning and then what it becomes because of where the characters take you. What I'm learning now and what I learned with Hard Eyes and, and this other creator of a book that I'm doing, if you figure that out in the plotting stage, you can kind of set yourself up for it and you can promote it that way and you can talk about it yeah. that way, yeah. um, which is nice. And I never had that leeway at Marvel. I never had that time um, to, to do that, that pre-thinking. Axel Alonso, the former editor-in-chief of Marvel, once told me that the best thing you can do for a story is give it time. Like get, get a draft out, get an outline out early so you've got time to let it percolate. And yeah, that always happens for me while scripting. So I think it is me working out stuff on the page. I think it is probably really cathartic. Um, It's a little embarrassing sometimes to go back and look at old stuff and realize, oh, wow, I was just (laughs) straight up doing that. Yeah. Um, But I think I I think it's what if anything about my work resonates with people, it's probably that like there's real human experience in there every time.
1: The protagonists of Heart Eyes seem like I wouldn't say the first, but they're definitely the most optimistic. I feel like a lot of them have been either um, reluctant or born out of tragedy, and there's always been a, a kind of an unwillingness to to heroism. Whereas with Heart Eyes, it's just like a beautiful story of optimism. Do you think that's reflective? Or- uh,
0: I think it's funny because I know where that story goes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I- yeah, Lupe is, she sees the world and her very broken world. Um, mm. So Hard Eyes is, it's like a Romeo Juliet after the monster apocalypse, like Lovecraftian uh, monsters have destroyed humans' civilization. Everybody that survived is living in hiding. And these two young people meet. And one of them is Lupe, who's out on the road alone, inexplicably surviving all of this and doesn't make any sense. And then there's the, the kid. <clears throat> Rico that she's falling in love with whose family thinks she must be a monster come to eat them. Uh, (laughs) And then they, they kind of find each other within that. Lupe's wrong. Like Lupe is, the world is not safe. She shouldn't be out on the road, but it's safe for her. So from her experience, everybody just needs to calm down and stop being afraid of things. And then they they can live their life. And that's not true of, of most other people. That's not the experience other people have. So I think it's, refreshing in that world to see someone who can still see the beauty and still just wants to make human connections and and wants to live her life when everybody else is still stuck in the you know five years ago we had to crawl into a hole in order to survive this if we come out of the hole we're going to die um and you know i've never put it that way aloud before but i wrote all of that while we were all locked down in our homes during the beginning of COVID yeah. and my life had basically stopped like everything outside the home and everybody was afraid and hating each other online and doing all of this you know the, the world as it was when everybody was stressed out and it's the yeah, I think she was like the person who was ignoring that and just going on um, so yeah it's I don't know in my head she's maybe that that's not healthy but neither is what everybody else is doing right everybody else in that world is just trying to get by and not living their life and like living in fear and and avoidance and she is taking it on head-on but what are the repercussions of that so I I think the story think, is dealing with like, there's not, there's not a great middle ground in this world. I
1: think you've just perfectly surmised the vaxxer anti-vaxxer problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: You totally yeah, to followed. I didn't do that, didn't do that on, on, on Twitter? purpose. No, I didn't do that on purpose at all. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I did I, at that time. This is really interesting. I never thought about it this way. Um, at that time, I was really struggling with how much we were hating other people from afar for being wrong you know like regardless of what wrong is to you personally the world was very angry with other people for being wrong and we were creating monsters all around because oh you're wrong about this so you're bad and like yeah but half of the world is wrong about this so if if all of those people are evil like we're screwed right like you can't you can't tilt at those windmills windmills forever um and so yeah apparently I just put that in the book. Because I have like a
1: great duplicity with that because it's kind of like there was the easiest solution ever, which was if everyone just fucking stayed inside for two weeks and the pandemic was over. but That's like on the micro level, but then on the macro level, it seemed like I mean, don't get me wrong. We're not in a great era for, for for politics or politicians. But at the same time, the macro solution wasn't really there. Like, we've got the vaccines. Now they don't work as well as we think. Okay, now it's just going to, if you get it, you can still pass it on. But it's going to, it's a really easy solution. But actually, it's really difficult at the same time. Right.
0: And I think, I'll, well, so like in my world, comics Twitter is the loudest screaming thing on my computer or phone at any time. And that is largely... People who work indoors, who've worked from home from home their entire careers, <laughs> who wanted everybody to just stay home for the reasons you're, you're you're speaking to. Meanwhile, I had just spent a year with contractors who never stopped working, like they were, yeah. like, they, you know, like construction workers and and people that worked at grocery stores and and the service industry. Like those people were they never stopped so to them is insane the idea that they would just stop working and go sit at home that wasn't yeah. their experience and, th- and that's the problem is that like people's perspective is so varied that they th- they think you're wrong and then you add to that algorithms that are giving you biased opinions based on what you'll yeah. watch the longest yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it really was the perfect storm um i was i was saying this to someone the other day i we we all thought that when the robots took over it would be like literal AI monster machines that wanted to kill the meat bags but really they just have to trick us into hating each other like the, yeah. <laughs> and they I don't know, it's right not, it's not even on purpose like we created these things to get people to watch their screens longer and now they yeah. make us watch propaganda all the time
1: well there's actual um, KB, KGB recordings from 50 odd years ago whereby it's very clearly spelling out that war's too expensive, the way to bring that... Because obviously in communist countries, you don't have to worry about the the two-term, getting re-elected, and, and then off you go. So there's not the short-termism. So they decided to... I can only speak for the authenticity that I heard it, and it's something that sounded reasonable to me, that an easy way to bring down a country isn't with troops and bombs, it's to make them fight amongst themselves, because that's how you stop development of of free thought, of invention, uh, you know, political freedoms. And I read another report, there was a study done, 10 out of 10 of the biggest Christian um, Facebook groups were all uh, generated by... Um, Russian and Macedonian troll farms, and even with BLM, it was seven out of ten. So it's just seeded there to cause disruption. So while a country's infighting with itself, you can't make any progress because you've always got half the country that's against it. By the way, they weren't both from Joe Rogan. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I was just like, this just makes perfect sense. This is this is the Western world that I've been living in.
0: For the problem on the macro if you step back from it the problem is obvious like we all all, yeah like fundamentally to our core relate ourselves to these ideals and other people relate to the opposite right and therefore we're not going to have discourse there's not going to be a conversation and the internet allows you to scream at people without looking them in the eyes and call Mm -hmm. them names without you know like without seeing the repercussions of that and at this point we have a generation of that and so we're just all used to <clears throat> getting really angry with people that yeah. are somewhere else and are just a name on a screen. And exactly. it's, it's the biggest problem I think we have, like all of these things that people are passionate about. I'm passionate about it too. Like I'm not any worse. A lib- I'm not any less blue liberal than I was before I realized this, but I don't think that the individual issues matter as much as we're not gonna get anything done if we just hate everyone. And it's, yes. it's scary. And it's a problem. And, um, yeah, That's that's Lupe's perspective. That's, that's, to get back to uh, that's what she's very smoothly done,
1: very smooth. So, not as he handsome, yes, nice. he's smooth. <laughs> 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 uh, one of the interesting things I picked up, um, from uh. From one of your previous podcasts, was that you the way that you chose Vault was kind of like you saw it as the A twenty four of comics, which I thought was a brilliant way of describing oh, I love it. Love it, yeah. So obviously yeah. you're quite um, you're quite familiar, or are, I would say, good friends with Cullen Bunn. Yes. Yeah, we I actually, named one of my
0: children after.
1: Really oh, yeah, did, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and then that ended up being somebody in one of your um, uh, comics as well, didn't it?
0: Yeah, that. I mean, that's why because I had named Colin Bloodstone after Colin Bunn. and then I, yeah. Colin Bloodstone was my favorite character from Avengers: Arena, and yeah. right around that same time is when my kids were born. So, good stuff. That's how that and happened.
1: Our first interview ever was with Colin Bun, and after about <laughs> fifty minutes, or was it fifty minutes? It was. let just for argument say fifty minutes on the hour. Tim said, "Oh, we spoke about before we started taping," and I just looked at my. I just looked down and was like. Yeah, I wish I, I wish we were taping. <laughs> but he was he was so gracious about it. And I thought, do I just carry the charade on for 10 more minutes and then just and then just say thank you very much and, and off we go? Or or do I or, or do I just like cop up to it now? So but I didn't, I carried the charade on. <laughs> but he's obviously got like huge experience with writing for um independent. Uh, publishers and he actually says he has like a a spreadsheet and it seems like it's an absolute minefield so do you think your experience with vault is going to lead you to look at them first choice or is it going to be very much um which sort of which shoe fits for each for each future release
0: yeah i mean i think each publisher has um different they have a different feel like i I think vault i've said this before but i think vault What the books have in common there are they're all a little bit strange, like a little Mm -hmm. bit weird, but also really high quality. Like the art is amazing that, you know, like um, there's a lot more editorial there than at most creator own, you know, indie comic publishers. Uh, Adrian, like he edits every book, so I get great story notes um, on each issue. Whereas a lot of other places, you know, you take it to Image, you get to keep all the rights. It's probably the biggest independent publisher by far, um, but it's just your book to make. Once they've approved it, like they leave you alone, and you, and you go make yeah. it in a, in a vacuum. Um, Skybound, so yeah, I, I think Skybound but...
1: doesn't do that though, does it? Um, I think uh, uh, I think they they with they they, <clears throat> they retain the IP rights. I think going yeah yeah. I mean, that's obviously, a that's a diffusion, but.
0: Yeah, I think Skybound—it's a little bit like Top Cow, right? Like it—it's it, mm-hmm. under the Image banner on some level, but it, it's a—it's yep. its a some entity. Um, so yeah, th- I'm doing another book at Comicsology, and I'm doing this other creator-owned book right now that is a 1980s rural crime story that's based on my parents. Yeah. And because it's my mom's story, and I'm doing that in conjunction with like her telling me, you know, like she's she's sort of co-writing it with me because she's the one that was there and lived it and, and, and knows all the things intimately, I didn't want to give any of those rights up. But yes. also uh, Tyler Jenkins, the fantastic artist, and Hillary Jenkins, they needed their page rate to make the book. So I needed to go to a place where I could get, retain the, the rights to it for my mom, but where they also got you know, full page rates um, so we could get the book made. Yeah, so I took um, that project to Comixology specifically to keep the rights but also get a page rate. Um, for the, not for me, but for the uh, create, the art team. And yeah, so what I'm learning now that I'm doing more creative on work is, yeah, you, you got to find the right home and the right um, editor and the right publisher for each of these projects to make sure they're going to get the right push. And one of the things I love about Vault is they don't flood the market with books. They yeah. like, y- they usually have new one, new number one um, every month. And they have an actual like marketing and promotional plan and team that, that helps you out and helps you figure out what to do. And as a the, as a comic creator, it, one of the most challenging things has always been promoting my own work, like being the online face of my brand and my work while also making the work, especially when you're as slow as I am. Like Cullen can do it because Cullen can write a script in, in two hours and then it's a go, fucking go machine, off and promote like... the thing.
1: There is no logical yeah. explanation to how he keeps up with your output. How he keeps up with his output. I mean, he even right. he did even sort of ghostwrite half of uh, the X Force title as well. As am I remembering that right?
0: We did uh, an arc that of that. I got so okay when I first started at Marvel. That I got Avengers Arena and X Force at the same time. They launched the same day. I had never written a ongoing book before and both of those double shipped every other month so I was on three books essentially worth of issues and I got behind on both of those books at the same time and Colin came in and did an arc with me in order to get me ahead on X-Force but yeah he's he just I think some of it's organization some of it is like my anxiety when writing comics is very much about it's like imposter syndrome like this isn't good enough yet I have to convince myself inside my own head that it's good enough in order to type it. And then I have to convince myself that the outline is good enough in order to, you know, to write the script. Cullen's anxiety is I got to get this done because there's 11 other things to do. So he is like very much a workhorse that sits down and does it. And I wish we could switch places, but he tells me both are just equally stressful. So maybe it wouldn't be any better and goes, sorry, go ahead. It reminds
1: me of when I was at uni and I was constantly getting uh, like extensions for coursework and my friend kit was like you're a bastard he goes we've been up all night doing this and you just asked for another week and they just said yes he goes I, I wish I could be more like you and I was like I, I was like dude you definitely do, know, do not want the stress of how I work right. <laughs> Trust me, you're having a nice day today I am not <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I think there are people that it doesn't stress out to to create things but though they're rare and i think most of us it's just whether or not you're stressed out at the beginning or the end (laughs) like you put it off um and colin yeah he 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 can sit down and do that but it's nice to have those resources i have a lot of friends who've done a lot more creator-owned work and it has been really creatively satisfying this last two years to step back do less work for hire and really like focus on my stories and different genres and it like I didn't have to write a superhero fight for like nine straight months and it's amazing <laughs> we've
1: me and Tim are both invested quite quite heavily on on being up to date with Marvel for quite a while but I there was a point of realization that with like the restarts and that it, when we got to um I don't know, was it Fresh Start when when CB first came into it? It was was Fresh Start, wasn't it? And I thought, you know what? This is the perfect time to to drop single issues because I put them in these boxes and I might as well take them into the garden and set fire to them because I will never, ever open these boxes again. At least with the trades, like they look nice on the shelf and at least I can go, oh, yeah, I remember I've got that one. Let's have a little through and put it back and forget about it again. Right. Even with the trades now, like I can't, it's almost impossible to keep up to date. Like it's there's just too much. So I'm probably around I don't know November, maybe December 2019 with like the the trades. But even things like um, uh, Hawkeye Freefall that Matthew Rosenberg did or Vita 3 did.
2: Um,
1: I can't remember what it was. But even now, you the trade paperbacks are almost becoming as pre- precious a commodity. I'm looking at my shelf. I'm like, well, that's a year and a half. That's taken up a whole shelf. Even if I only read Marvel for the next five years, I've run out of shelf space again. Yeah, that's- I had that
0: experience um, when I first, when you work at Marvel, they send you PDFs of all of the books that come out. And my, my inbox would just fill up every, like every Friday, Tom Brevoort would send out like all the books that are going out that week. And you realize like, I'm never going to be able to read all of them like i don't yeah, yeah. i spend all day long thinking about superheroes and then <laughs> now my inbox is inundated with all these superheroes i could yeah. read and they're digital so i it was nice i didn't have to put them in boxes anymore mm. but i just got super burnt out and so now i only read comics if someone has been talking like my friends or the internet has been talking about how yep. brilliant something is for a year then i'll go back and read that year yeah. um yeah. because it's just it's just constant it it and it's, I love superheroes. I'll always love superheroes, but there are a lot of superheroes in our world now with the yeah. movies and the TV shows yeah, and yeah, 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 all yeah. of the comics. And I've been doing this since I was 11. So <laughs> it's just, it's hard to get excited about Captain America punching someone, you know. Yeah, oh, totally. that was it.
1: You've just refreshed my memory. It was because you were you were saying you didn't have to write a superhero fight. And the point of all that was, even with the trade paperbacks now, I've sort of got to the point where I'm like, this is just going to end with them punching each other and then the hero's going to win. And I was kind of like, do you know what? I don't, I don't even have the, enthi- I don't have the enthusiasm for it anymore. And as you rightly say, like there is general hype about things like um, when Saladin Ahmed did a uh, black ball or like Kelly Thompson's Hawkeye. And you can retrospectively pick these things up. And I think that's the beauty of not doing single issues. Like, there was a certain excitement of hunting on eBay for certain things that I didn't have performance single issues, but now it just feels exhausting. Like how much time the, the storage space and all that kind of thing to sort of double back a little bit as well. So when you were writing X-Force, there was um, something I picked up on it from another interview that you did. Now I'll sort of punctuate this with something that Kelly Thompson said on one of, podcast from maybe five or six years ago. And um I know that from Twitter interactions that she didn't really want Quentin Quire in West Coast Avengers because how do you how do you have him and two Hawkeyes in the same team and make the Hawkeyes have any value? And even right. with A-Force as well. Now I'll be completely honest with you, I read that and thought it was absolutely horrid. Like I I wrote off Kelly Thompson immediately. Obviously I was wrong and now I'm, she's done like the body of work that came after that. So it was a real relief to me to know that she wrote that under duress. The uh, characters were basically pushed onto her. She didn't want to do the title. And I think at least for the first few issues that that came across. Now, you didn't want to have domino or cable in x-force now you were kind of a little bit clandestine to the reasons why but i like to interpret that is that you didn't want to give robert lifefield any more uh, (laughs) any more (laughs) any more spotlight that was absolutely necessary
0: (laughs) i i well cable they they asked me to pitch i think i didn't understand the assignment until a little bit further in they wanted me to pitch a cable and X-Force book specifically because Remender's run was ending and they wanted to head yeah. in a different direction. Uh, what ended up happening is Sam Humphreys did another uncanny X-Force run at the same time as mine. But initially yeah. the idea was, Oh, we're going to go in a different direction. Cause like we can't follow this. So let's head in a different direction. They clearly wanted a nineties X-Force throwback book. And I didn't get that off the bat. So yeah, I'm pitching yeah, yeah. just characters I like to, to mm. do the series. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, so Cable, I knew I had to do. So I went back and read so much Cable. I, I read um, Joe Casey's run. I read uh, the all the stuff with Cable and Hope in the future. I'd never read any of that. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I read his Wikipedia page, which is the most inexplicable life that any fictional character has ever lived is yeah, is Cable. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, whenever we were talking about the team, like they really wanted Domino in it. And to me, Domino Mm. was a silly-looking character from my childhood that I couldn't imagine uh, doing anything interesting with. But because I didn't have a voice for her in my head and I didn't care about her, I had to find who she was and figure out what to do with her. And Domino and Colossus is arguably the best thing in that book, like that relationship. You have have a Colossus that's just come off of um, the Phoenix Five who his relationship has, has ended and he's in a really dark place. And then you give him this really interesting rebound relationship that you know isn't gonna last. Like it can't possibly be good forever, but that really works. And that, yeah, you you just, I don't know. I think characters you love too much as a reader are harder to write because you already have expectations of what they're supposed to be. And the other ones, there's freedom there. There's like, like I didn't know what the hell to do with Dr. Nemesis. So I made him fuck with Forge all the time. And then that gave us the other great relationship of that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas Cable and Hope was the, was supposed to be the, the core of the series. The, the, those are the two characters I got and understood. And that part ended up being more challenging to write because yeah. I felt hemmed in about what they're supposed to be and that, like what yeah, that's yeah. supposed to mean. Forge and Dr. Nemesis and Domino and Colossus like, I could do the hell I wanted to off on the side. And it was, it was the most fun. With that,
1: the, the two pulled together didn't they? With the, okay. Was it Cy Spurrier did the uh, succeeding arc? And then yep. I felt that Cullen Bunn's Uncanny X-Force was almost almost like a successor to that in both the sort of tone and, and like in part the characters as well. But was it a bit of a reality check with All New or Different with how rushed those ex-titles were? Because on paper you've got Cullen Bunn, Dennis Hopeless and Jeff Lemire. Or writing concurrent titles, like, that's a dream ticket. There's something about that era that just didn't, didn't feel like it worked. Like, Did you feel like you were under too much pressure? Was it rushed or? Oh, it was super rushed.
0: That era of X Men was supposed to be led in the way that Hickman's X Men has been led by a superstar creative team on one book. And there was a three year plan <clears throat> for what was gonna, where that was going to go. And that creator, <laughs> the editor of X-Men quit the day before a creative retreat when all of that was supposed to be presented, no way. Um, like quit and moved on. And then the, the writer and creative team that were supposed to take lead on that, get to the retreat and find out that all of the other X-Books that had been approved were running on a different plan than theirs. So basically that editor approved everybody's stories because he was leaving And none of it lined up. And so, yeah, that writer ended up leaving Marvel um, over that, like just like ended his exclusive and quit the next week. And so all of the X-Men plans for like three years had to be scrapped and redone. So we were brought in like a week or two after that. Like we were cast, you know, like they brought in Jeff and me and Cullen. And then we had to figure out a year or two worth of X-Men in a couple of days. And so like with, with my run, my take on that at the time was, okay, I'm going to pitch something really, really simple that I can do no matter because this is just going to change like stuff's going to shift around. uh, I know this is going to be challenging. So my pitch was basically just it's summer vacation and they're on a road trip and then I can do whatever I want and the world kind of blows up. Uh, However, when I went to write it, I tied the early plots really heavily into there's teenage Scott Summers who has the face of a terrorist because of what adult cyclops had done. Cause yeah, that's what yeah, we yeah. talked about in the room. Like adult cyclops during the Inhumans thing that we were putting off. Like there were the events of Inhumans versus X-Men had occurred, and Scott's a terrorist and the world hates him. And we're gonna eventually get to that, but first we're gonna show the repercussions. So my yeah, yeah my first whole first story arc is about like being a teenager who has a face the world hates and dealing with like am I gonna grow up to be a monster and then Jeff and Charles when they actually wrote that story I think probably rightfully reacted to the internet not liking that idea and made it something else so my shit doesn't make any sense like Scott is he's acting like the world hates and fears him because of his face and then it turns out like what Cyclops did wasn't wasn't that atrocious and wasn't that big a deal and no one cares um and none of that's their fault all of that is just we had to figure the shit out really really fast and we're just in a room talking over each other and you know like yeah yeah that sounds good let's go let's go do it and yeah. then you all go do like slightly different stories and slightly different variations of that and when there's not time to kind of hem that in and make changes and look at outlines and stuff it yeah stuff just goes off the rails so, and then you add to that with my experience, I had Mark Bagley, who's the fastest writer who ever, or write, fastest artist who ever lived, <laughs> staying in front of him was a pain in the ass. because I mean, lead time, you know, like I had to sit down and write a script for an issue or for a series that didn't exist two weeks ago for a man that can draw as fast as I can write. And no, like, yeah. yeah, that whole, my all new X-Men experience was like being on a treadmill that's a couple miles an hour too fast and yeah. just trying not to get thrown yeah. in the back wall. Um and th- I, I'm proud of stuff in there. I, I I don't think all of those books I think have moments. But yeah, there there just wasn't a really detailed roadmap because there wasn't time for it. You know, there wasn't like I said, yeah. like Axel said, the best thing you can do for a story is give it time to percolate and we had no time.
1: Yeah yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean I suppose at least one thing with uh with um Bagley is that at least it was someone whose first language was English because the, the 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 sort of slate of Marvel artists just spans into sort of South America into Europe into Southeast Asia like that's got to pose its own difficulties
0: yeah it the biggest challenge i ever had with that was um i worked with an artist whose english wasn't his first language and he is a translator but because of that he didn't read the dialogue and <laughs> that only really mattered because he would put the wrong speaker in the foreground so if i had five characters and one person saying most of the stuff that person would be in the background and so i'd have to rewrite the panel to make whoever was in the foreground uh talk but what that ended up doing is teaching me to kind of do my dialogue uh marvel style at least in my own head so that i'm not precious or beholden to anything that's in the script when the art comes in i just redo it you know like this is kind of what's being said let's do the dialogue solid here which makes me turn scripts in faster because now I'm not being precious with the dialogue until it's already drawn. Mm -hmm.
1: Interesting. I think um you said that you know Marvel's never sorry Marvel's only been like a positive experience for you they've only been helpful to you but I know with um with when we spoke to Cullen he said that he would never say anything derogatory about marvel but you said i'm certainly not in a rush to work with them again and they're certainly not in a rush to work with me again i sort of think when you look at the the, the raft of creatives as well at the beginning of all new or different and the ones that have gone on to succeed at dc like tom king uh, tom taylor mm-hmm. uh, joshua williamson and um, sam humphries like they're almost writing, they've all gone on to write almost the most important Justice League characters. And, and from the outside looking in, it kind of feels like, I don't want to say it's clicky, but it feels like there's an in-group at Marvel. It's not in conflict, but it feels like a group of creatives that possibly find it easier to get things pushed through. Yes, asked Cullen as well, and I'd love to hear your your experience of this. There's a famous email that CB sent out on in the first sort of month from being there, saying, "Look, whatever title you'd ever want to um, ever want to write, irrespective of if anybody's on it in the minute, let us know, and we'll see how it goes." We had Donny Cates on Venom, we had uh, Rosenberg on Punisher, lifelong fans of the IPs, so and it just made sense for them to do it. But Cullen was like, "Yep, I definitely knew of that email."
0: I okay. So when there's a when there's a major editorial change at a publisher, there's going to be some shifting around <clears throat> because they have different tastes and also they want to put their mark on it, right? Like you, you can understand if you got that job, you're going to have that job for a period of time and yeah. you're going to have an era, right? And <clears throat> Colin and I and several other creators were very much Axel guys. We were brought in and started doing the most of our work. Like I I came in right after Axel started. And so I think it's not necessarily that CB didn't like our work or didn't, wanna, didn't want us there or want to push us, but like he had other new things he wanted to do. And it makes sense, you know, we'd been there, we'd all been there about a decade. It made yeah. sense, I think, to bring other voices in to kind of like, you know, this is a new thing. Um, I kept getting work, um, but I wasn't necessarily part of the major plans. However, I will say, in my experience, I went through a divorce that really fucked up my schedule. Um, I, I was supposed to be the ongoing writer of Doctor Strange uh, when I did that Doctor Strange run, and I just, I was like, I going through it psychologically, and something had to slip. And then what slipped was my planning for the next arc of Doctor Strange, and so like I had to step away from that book. And what I didn't realize at the time is that made me look untrustworthy like I was a guy that could count on to turn in stuff on time and to right. you know, like to be you know a, an ongoing writer and I think I lost some of that trust going through that and when I came out the other side Marvel was still giving me work but it was more mini series more things in other departments so like yeah, I wasn't yeah. at the same level mm-hmm. and um, that's no fault of anyone's but it's not even really my fault like if, you know I, I had to get through that period of my life in order to move on creatively um but i I think that made it easier to move on for me when they wanted to go in another direction because i was no longer necessarily like you know i just slipped it's like a a, an athlete like at certain part of your career you're like one of the superstars of the team and then you shift into another part of your career you're a role player i think they put me in that and it's easier to replace the role players so i think had i not had that not happened or had I had my head in the game a little bit better, I probably would have been in a better position, you know, to, to be part of that. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I'm, you know, there's also personal relationships. There's also like, for sure, if you're really good friends with an editor or really good, you know, like Scotty Young yeah. and C.B. Zabulski are great friends that have been forever. So Scotty's got okay. CB's ear regardless of what his career is doing, yeah, Scotty's yeah, also yeah. a superstar. So it was, it's not a difficult decision to make. Um yeah, yeah, yeah but you know that that plays a role in any business but me personally I don't begrudge anyone I think I there are career decisions I made that I would make differently and I, I still have good personal relationships with everybody at Marvel I'm enjoying this period of my career now where work for hire isn't the whole point like I really really put my head down and just made Marvel books for a decade to the detriment of my creative freedom and like fun of the job and then also like i don't own that much like i did i wasn't doing what other people were doing and creating these these um ip off off to the side that i could sell in other media so i'm enjoying this stage of my career but what i what i would love is you know to have a few successes um outside of the big two and then get another opportunity uh, at bat to to try to do something else over there but Mm -hmm. yeah it's for sure it that's hard you know, when, <laughs> when a big change like that happens corporately. And I think DC's going through it now with, you know, the, the big changes of Warner Brothers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It, though It's just shakier, you know, like things change and um, you just have to figure out how to stay relevant and how to keep making books and, and keep getting paid while you wait for the landscape to kind of settle in. in yeah. In
1: I mean, I, I honestly think your best work has come from, from your independent stuff, even like the superhero stuff at- uh Exo uh, uh, war at Valiant, it felt like there was... You didn't have to stick... I don't want to... I mean, look, I love Marvel. I'm a Marvel fan. That's the only right. reason why I know who you are. So I don't want to feel like I'm being disparaging to something. Like, even even your favourite child can disappoint me. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? There may be god almost said the pandemic was a blessing in disguise you you can't can't say those
0: words but you don't i mean like i think so i like how i feel about it um in every way other than financially it was really difficult financially to not work for that long yeah and then to have to figure out how to do because unlike Colin, i didn't have a thriving creator-owned career like i had to figure that part out um and that was a a real challenge because it's just it's different you know you you go do a five issue mini series at a publisher you Get paid a little bit, you own you get paid a little bit less, and then it's just those five issues of pay, but you've got all this other work to do to promote it and figure it yeah. out and get it out and pitch it. And that's just less money than hey, do you want to write <clears throat> Spider Woman? And then I write Spider Woman for 20 issues or whatever, and get paid every month. And there's a boot on my neck to turn scripts in. Like from a financial standpoint, that's easier, but taking a step back, doing a little bit less writing spending more time on each on each thing and thinking it through. And then also like Mm -hmm. figuring out what do I want to say. You know, when you when you're writing three Marvel books and it's just essentially what what you figured out to do based on the schedule they gave you and the character they asked you to write, Mm -hmm. that it's it's harder to say stuff within that. Like I I did um a cosmic ghostwriter miniseries and it was really fun. And Yeah, yeah the art Scott Hepburn's art on that series is amazing. But like I'm not a cosmic ghostwriter guy. Like I had to figure out what the hell that was and what to do. Like Donnie and I have very different Beast. brains for comics. And it was, it was fun because it was outside my wheelhouse. And I think we did a great job with it that's not yeah. something i would create on my own it was just a job i was getting giving. is that why and... you
1: made it more frank centric it was more about frank castle than it was possibly cosmic Go- like again it's almost like that lyrical to and fro between chorus and verse where frank that was a little bit more serious than you almost had the catchy chorus which was the cosmic ghostwriter
0: parts yeah to me yes to me the fact that he's crazier when he's ghostwriter and that he's insane because he's gone through all of these traumatic experiences the humanity of that is more interesting than the crazy guy that's blowing stuff up you know like yeah, the, right. the nick cage ghostwriter making saying weird shit is really fun for a couple of pages but what i'm more interested in is what is that what, what's the humanity behind that and what is he like, and that's why we brought cammy into it too like he here's a person who he wants to save and to keep from having similar experiences yes. but who's similarly traumatized and how does he try to protect her? And how does he fail at that? Because she is so much like him. That was the story. That was just what was interesting about it to me. Um, I don't know whether that was interesting to Cosmic Ghostwriter fans, but from my perspective, um, and we were supposed to do more. Um Scott Heppard and I were going to do another series that got canceled because of COVID. So I had other bigger plans for that. That's also why we left a character I love, Cammy, in a terrible, terrible place, because we were supposed yeah. to go back to that and it happened. Um, but yeah, it, I did the same thing at Marvel that I do now, but there was less leeway and there was less time to figure it out. Like I always tried to to find the thing that was me or that was human or or, um, engaging. It's just harder sometimes um, because it's so fast.
1: Again, quoting um, Kelly Thompson, when she was doing A4, she was trying to set up a few like strings to maybe third or fourth arcs. But one of the things that you came to realize quite soon that you can't really, write to more than four issues you're continuously writing miniseries anyway the way she punctuated it was unless you're uh, jason aaron writing avengers then that's pretty much the only way you can approach any story in the in the sort of modern comic
0: age. right well not only that everything you do is going to get undone now because the way mm. we do comics is let's change it so that it's interesting and new and then we're exciting the readers so like you can set a status quo that's really interesting, but if you're not the person that writes the next story, chances are that will either get immediately blown out or completely ignored. Um, like, I, I I, haven't read Spider-Woman since I left Spider-Woman because it's I, I'm so close to the character, and that would be mm-hmm. weird. Um, from what I understand, uh, Carla Pacheco's run is fantastic, and it, at this point, it's as long as mine. But I think one of the first things she did was punt <laughs> Jerry and... Uh, roger out of the book because that was our story and she wanted to tell her own story which makes sense but like in my mind i spent you know i spent years building this (laughs) thing that was really important and then now it's just i would
1: absolutely fucking hate that i couldn't take it honestly i would i don't think well i mean obviously i'm not a comic writer so ain't a problem that i'm ever gonna have to worry about but I, i it would unravel me I mean, even like, for example, like Donny Cates made Cosmic Ghost Rider and now it's had, what, two, three succeeding creative teams. I don't think I could
2: handle that. I I wouldn't be able to deal with it. The thing is interesting is that you can see what the incentive is for a new creator to sort of disregard a previous status quo. But some of the great runs of all time, you know, didn't do that. They would credit the the pre-existing status quo. I'm thinking of like when uh, Brubaker took over um uh, daredevil from bendis and and his team like that that did not that actually just took the previous status quo and evolved from it and it it became like a huge like multi multi-year arc between the two of them it was i think really great for that reason so it's i mean you can see why people do that but i think it, i'd like to see yeah. that more often yeah no i
1: agree Even the senti after frank miller that was like decades spanning
0: i yeah. think that the challenge of that is I think the reason it changed, hearing you say that, I've just had this thought, it could be completely wrong. Uh, but hearing you say that, that was the last era where you got a book and you got to do a dozen or more issues. You know, mm. you got to do a couple years. If you got Daredevil, that was a couple year run. Like now, even if you have those long runs, they relaunched it and, and you know they do these big events all the time. And so it's, I think it's incentivized us to make our mark quickly and make those changes yeah. quickly. Because everybody wants... You know, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. We want a new thing that's like nothing you've ever seen before and so we're all trying to to do these big crazy changes and they all sound cool on paper you know, but sometimes it's like you've lost you're throwing, like you said, you're throwing away some really interesting character development that's happened and they're all perpetual second out stories anyway. We don't get to end these things we don't get to, there's no happily ever after from Matt Murdock. So yeah when you change it, change it, change it, change it, like there's diminishing returns, I think. Like this no longer seems like an ongoing thing. And it seems like a series of miniseries that we're all doing. Yeah. And I mean, I've done it. That's, it makes sense to do it that way as a creator because it's your only shot at standing out. If you're Ed Brubaker, that run is fantastic. It's never going to shine as bright as Bendis's because Bendis yeah. took it Get over first. and did something big after a time of, of no one caring about Daredevil, right? Yeah, it's, it's probably the hardest thing about editorially at Marvel right now. Like, how do you change everything and make it new and exciting every time after years and years and years of this event cycle? And it, it, it as a writer, I did it for a decade and it became challenging to find new and interesting stuff to do with superheroes punching. And I was there for 10 years. Like, those characters are now, what, like 60 years old? At least... Like, like, how do you what? What new interesting thing you're gonna do with Spider Man at this point? Totally, that hasn't been done in some way before. Like, it's it's it is hard, but I do think we've lost something from the era where when you got hired to write a book, you got three years to tell
1: yeah yeah a story. I feel it as a reader because I think that's part of me losing patience with it a little bit, and also the explosion of indie publishers like. Um, Black Mask, like an AWA, like Boom, thriving. And images, I don't I want to say like a resurgence because it's never really went away. But at the moment, it just feels like it's getting it right. Like yeah. it's not sort of throw it at the wall and see what sticks. It feels like a concerted and more precise sort of way of working. And again, I'm a massive Marvel fan. So, it, you know, it's all par for the course. You do feel like there's no reward for sticking around when it's completely... And you don't mind it, like, look, Chip Sadarsky's doing what? He's on to 25, 30. We, we had Al in talk, which was like a full story of 50 issues. But that's few right. and far between. And I kind of miss a little bit with All New, All Different. It was completely like blunderbuss, like some of the weird shit that we got out of that. But we also got some really good stuff, like going back to um, Joshua Williamson's uh, Illuminati, going back to Sam Humphrey's Weird World. I don't feel we'd ever get yeah. those now, but they are absolutely hidden gems. Like again, going back to Saladin Amid's Black Bolt, it's got to be ex- even exaggerated further with like, how do you write Spider-Man? Because it's not just that, because you've got someone writing Silk, you've got someone writing Sc- Spider-Gwen, you've got someone writing Mike Mike Morales, you've got somebody mm-hmm. writing Silk. And then there's, and then how right. long have you got before there's another Spider-Genin or a Spider-Island? It, it feels,
0: <laughs> it, even saying that feels exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, well, the the events make it difficult. I mean, my Spider-Woman run is probably the thing I'm the most respected for in my time at Marvel. And we had it launched in the middle of um, Spider-Verse, right? And then we did Civil War II. I learned from Spider-Verse that Tying too heavily into the plot outline that someone of some, a story someone else is writing is going to be a huge pain in the ass and make for an inexplicable story. So when we did Civil War Two, it was very much a personal story between Carol and and Jess and wasn't wasn't tied to the events of the story that much. But it was yeah, it was really challenging. It's challenging like how the hell do you launch a book in the middle of an event that you can't explain to readers without them reading the event and yeah. then have those events like we and. I tell people now like don't read the first four issues of my spider woman run start with issue five because that's where the actual story started but that story like Jessica Drew quitting the Avengers and going to be a PI again to have Mm. a a normal life and then finding out she's bad at normal life because she's never had one that came from me hating having to explain spider-verse to people like it was annoying to have to figure out and write a story that was so inexplicable and dance between those raindrops so i just made jess annoyed like i just had to do something so awful and deadly that i can't even explain because it's a stupid i don't want to do that anymore and that's where the story came from that was very much my reaction to like fuck events like this this thing that i had no control over totally tanked the opening arc of our book i don't want to do that anymore i want to go do this thing over in the corner yeah um but it's like that all the time and they just did did a great story they just did it with
1: namor what was what was the most recent event that they they did they started in namor mini and the first three issues of it were in i don't know what what have we had empire something like that Right. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous.
0: And it makes sense. People will buy the tie-ins, so you're going to get more readers. Like, that's the idea. But,
1: but it's the Namor, people who just wanted had, us... When was the last what? Namor title? Like, people are waiting. Right. Like, he's he's one of the OG, no. OG, actual Marvel Comics right. characters. And probably the last thing I could remember probably was, I don't like when he was one of the five in um, A Versus X. That was the yeah. last time I could remember him being involved in an ongoing storyline. And it's not just that, Dennis, because I, I feel like when you were right, this was the one that really fucked me off. And I was like, do you know what? I'm done. I'm not buying 80 fucking issues every month. I can't. In Civil War II, I think it got up to about 90 or something. I was like, I'm not doing yeah. this, because that event sucked cock. It was like the whole <laughs> fucking thing was a conversation. It was two issues of two people sitting down and going, what are we going to do about it? Well, I'm I'm the most intelligent man in the world and you're the third or fourth. Okay, here's the solution, job done. The whole thing was fabricated, but that wasn't the point I was trying to make. <laughs> so on the Daredevil run, when I think it was Cholsel's um, second volume, they had a Running with the Devil um, banner and they brought a bullseye, they brought Kingpin, really pretty good actually, and uh, also a Electra. The only thing those four minis had in common, or, or the ongoing, was the banner on the front. Q had experience of that with the Age of Apocalypse thing, where it was yeah, just yeah. three concurrently released titles, stick the banner on it, and make it seem like it's in some way like entwined. When they started doing that, actually when it started to lose me, it's a dicey game to play. Right.
0: Well, in that Age of Apocalypse... The reason that went that way is because that was planned at the same time that IVX was planned at the same time that we were, like I said earlier, plotting a whole year of X-Men in like a couple yeah, yeah, of days. Yeah. And they saw, oh, this movie's coming out. We need to do an apocalypse thing. And you guys all have apocalypse related characters. And so we, we briefly talked like, OK, what kind of crossover could we do? And then we, we all realized like that's too many crossovers in the first year of these books. Like we yeah, can't yeah, yeah. do literally have them do it. So that's when I came up with the idea of the banner. But yeah, the, the stories have nothing to do with each other at all. Yeah, it, it, it was <laughs>
1: naughty. If you're happy to, to tie up there and we'll say thank you. Thank you for appearing. If you're content, yeah. unless there's anything you want to get off your chest.
0: No, just uh, everybody by heart. Eyes, uh, comes everybody out by heart. Eyes. Next Wednesday, which is August 17th. Next Wednesday from now. Um, yeah, it's creator own books. Only <laughs> they only succeed and they only let us do more if people go ask the retailer and, and look for it. And I'm really yeah. proud of this book. And Victor Abanez is a genius. And uh, I'm excited for him to be able to draw all of something. We did gene so Grey good. together. And That's he's excellent. not a monthly artist. So we weren't able to do every issue. And this, he does every issue and he's brilliant. And yeah, so, so good. ask your yeah. retailer, please. Yeah, and we do yeah.
2: it. Dennis has been very generous. You share with us the first issue of this. and I think we can both confirm it's outstanding.
1: It's sick. Characters are beautiful. The art is beautiful. And as we've already said, Dennis Hopeless is also beautiful.
2: <laughs> so
1: on that note, I'm going to say goodbye to Dennis. Thank you very much for appearing. I hope it's not been too much of a chore speaking to us this early in the morning.
0: No, this is a blast. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, it's Tim, fun. thank yeah, you thank very thank much you for guys. being here with me. Uh, as always, <laughs>
1: So that only leaves me one thing to say or well, actually I'm going to be cheeky and say if you've not subscribed after that then why are you waiting for how have you got to the end and not click subscribe and give us a five star rating or maybe just send me nudes I don't mind either one's good <laughs> <laughs> and that only leaves me one thing to say we have been and this is the end
0: all right <laughs> thank you guys yeah thanks a lot guys that was a great